Well, we've been working through this uh, series. We're partway through. His name's Abraham. Up on the screen, it's Abraham. And uh, for those of you who aren't too sure of the story, that'll become clear. Uh, we're going to flick up on the screen in a few minutes. We'll have the reading up there in a few minutes, and it'll be Abraham. Uh, but up on the screen, it's Abraham. It changes part way, and we'll understand in a, in a short time, a few weeks perhaps, why that happens. Right at this point in time, we're breaking into the story of this man who has been called by God to do a remarkable thing. You and I live our lives. We, we buy a home. We do whatever we do. We have relationships with our families. Perhaps we don't have relationships with our families. We live in the 21st century age where we are relatively autonomous. We don't think in terms of family units in the way that the ancients did. We just tend to go and do our thing and our jobs might take us to different parts of the country, maybe even different parts of the world. We have that here this afternoon, don't we? There are people from right across the world here in this room this afternoon. The ancients were very different. The ancients understood that in a hostile world, in a world without civilization and with just the, the beginnings of uh, a legal system and the beginnings of some kind of structured uh, society, that one of the things that we needed most was to build a family unit and to build a protection of a family unit. God spoke to Abraham, Abraham. Uh, after 300 years of silence, there had been no voice of God into the world and he said this, leave your family because I am going to be your protection. And our journey as we, work, as we walk alongside this man is to understand firstly how God worked that promise out in the man Abraham. Because it works like this, and this is, I think, how this book works for us today. If we understand and if we come to terms with the fact that a God who calls this man to do remarkable things and then proves himself faithful, if that's the kind of God he is, then when he calls us to do what seems to us to be remarkable things, then if he is the same God, as the God of Abraham, then he's going to be faithful to us, isn't he? That's one of the patterns that the Bible is continuously wanting to put in place. You can trust this God because a God who makes promises keeps his promises. The God of promise is the one who is faithful as well. The God who seems to call us to do things which seem humanly impossible delivers against the promises of security. Uh, and we see this worked out in this man. So we'll get our reading up on the screen, which is from um, chapter 14. A little bit of background, if you weren't able to be with us last week, we need to get the context. Because this is, by any account, a strange incident. It's an unusual little section of the Bible. But we need to understand why it's unusual by understanding where it sits. Abraham has been uh, called by God to leave his land and go to a, a land that God has promised him. He goes to that land and almost, it seems in the, the way the story is narrated, almost immediately there is a famine that drives him out of the land that God has promised. And then he ends up in Egypt and comes out of Egypt back into the land that God had promised him, a much richer man. 
If you want to work out and understand how that uh, works out, read the chapters before. You can download the talks off, off the internet as well, off our website. And you can see how that works out. A remarkable intervention of God makes him rich. But he brings his nephew with him, who is uh, who's orphaned. His father dies, and, and uh, Uncle Abraham promises to take care of Lot. At this point in our story, as we read this, uh, we need to understand that Abraham is an old man already. Lot is a middle-aged man already. These are not young people. Lot is not, Lot, Lot is not a young man. He's not um, a headstrong kind of youth. He's, he's a mature, middle-aged man. Uh, and there is a crisis post-Egypt because they both have lots of goods, lots of flocks. The land isn't big enough to sustain them. And Abraham, who has the patriarchal right to say, well, I'm going there, and therefore you go in the opposite direction, grants Lot the amazing grace to say, which way do you want to go? Which way do you want to go? And Lot chooses. What he decides is the place, firstly, it looks like Egypt, the place where they were driven to. Uh, And secondly, it's moving away from Abraham, moving away from the blessing of God, moving away from the land that God had promised them. He ends up in that place, and uh, there is wickedness in the land, and within a short time, according to the story, it all falls apart. The wheels fall off for Lot. He ends up in captivity. He's taken hostage by uh, an, uh, an allegiance of kings, who rise up against the king who has been uh, subduing the people in the land. And Lot, along with all of the possessions and people of Sodom and Gomorrah, are taken captive, and Lot ends up in trouble. Him and all of his family. Uncle Abraham, who is um, at this point in human terms, would say, well, you know, you're you're now a middle-aged man. You're your own responsibility. You've made the decisions. You've got to just live with it now takes 318 men, a very small army, and miraculously, incredibly defeats uh, the forces that had taken his nephew and redeems his nephew, brings him back. That's where we enter into the story. He's returning with with Lot, with all of the possessions, and what we see is he arrives back not just with the possessions of Lot and everything that he left Uncle Abraham with, but all of the possessions that were taken from the cities that Lot had gone to live in or to live nearby. So it's not just good for Lot, it's good for the king of Sodom, who also receives everything back. And what we see as he he arrives back is this, I've called it the curious incident of Melchizedek. Because that is just what it is. It is just strange in the narrative of the story. He comes back and this character called Melchizedek just drops into the story briefly. You remember, um, do you remember some of you will kind of relate to this. Do you remember um, Mr. Ben? Yeah, some of you remember Mr. Ben. Do you remember the man with the hat who suddenly appeared? And then he disappeared again, and everything changed because the man appeared and disappeared. He had to go back to the land or whatever it was. That's a bit like Melchizedek. He's just there for a moment. He just appears. Something happens, and then he's gone. And remarkably, apart from one other verse in the Psalms, that is the only mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. 
So we're reading, aren't we? We're 21st century people reading this story, and we understand a few things. We understand when God is narrating a story through his people, when he allows his story to be told, when he allows situations to occur, no situation is wasted. No situation is an accident. No situation is just a, so what? This strange and curious incident of Melchizedek is incredibly important for us. But we don't understand until much later on what's going on. But you and I have the privilege to understand what is going on. The first thing, just very briefly, is there is a remarkable contrast in two kings, in the two kings. We see here that as they arrive back, two kings appear on the scene. Melchizedek, king of Salem, appears on the scene. And in verse 21, the king of Sodom appears on the scene. Two kings. What happens as Abraham returns, the contrast couldn't be greater in terms of the response. Bear in mind that Abraham is now walking back across the desert, or the, the, the scrubland, and he is, he is followed by this enormous company of people and possessions. We, we, kind of, we don't get that really in the story, do we? Suddenly, in the distance, you know the way the movies portray it, you get this little dust cloud on the horizon. What's going on over there? And over the next hour, it becomes clearer that it is a huge company of people that are journeying back. Initially, the king of Sodom would have probably thought, here's the rampaging forces coming back to take a little bit more. The remarkable outcome is that it's not that. It is Abraham returning with all of the possessions. The king of Sodom appears. Melchizedek appears. Two men. Two respond to that remarkable event. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, that's what that means, is the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So the king of righteousness by name is the king of peace by appointment. That's his title. He is the king of the place called peace. He's king in two ways. King of righteousness, king of peace. And then there's the king of Sodom. Abraham walks up to him, and a remarkable thing happens. The king of Salem produces bread and wine. I'm going to see what that means in a few minutes. Uh, and he blesses Abraham. What a remarkable thing. What does he say? We see that in verse 19. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. In other words, do you see what's happening there as he conveys that blessing? He is acting in what becomes, as we see the story unfold, he is acting in a priestly capacity to bless Abraham on behalf of God. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. I'm, I, I'm acting, if you like, as a priestly intermediary to bless you creator of heaven and earth, that's who God is, and praise be to God most high. Praise be to God most high. You know, that, that is now reflecting back. Why praise be to God most high? 
who delivered your enemies into your hand. That's what he sees. So the king of Salem, who is the one who blesses Abraham, is also the one who looks at the situation that has gone on over this past period of time. We don't know how long it took for Abraham to recover, for them to respond, for him to recover. We know that at some point he returns, and the interpretation, the perspective that the king of Salem is, has on that is, I look at what's happened. 318 men, actually 319 men go, 318 men plus Abraham go, and they recover all of this, and my interpretation, my understanding of what is happening as, we, as I observe that return is that God has done that. That's God who's done that. In human terms, we would say, Abraham and 318 men have done that. But the king of Salem knows better. It's God who's delivered your enemy into your hands. It's God who has done this work. The reflection of the glory is not on Abraham, but it's on God. And therefore, I can bless you by the power of God who has blessed you, and I can reflect that glory back to God who is creator of heaven and earth. What does the king of Sodom do? Okay, you've brought it all back, now let's strike a deal. That's it. That's basically it. Verse 22. Verse 21, sorry. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. That's it. That was his decision. He's actually trying to strike a better bargain for himself there, actually. Because people in those ancient days were a source of creating goods as they continue to be today. You know, let's be honest, we are all creators of goods in our work environment in one way or another. Whether the creator of good is the outcome of a a successful child who finally leaves school or a computer program or a product or whatever it might be, we're all producers of goods. And so the king of Sodom knows if I get the producers of goods, I can let the goods go because I can always do some more. (laughs) He says, look, I'm going to strike a deal with you. What a difference. What a difference in perspective. One sees God working, one sees the opportunity to strike a deal. Now, what becomes clear, and we'll see this in a few weeks, we have, we have responsibility for how we interpret the, the issues of life. The king of Sodom pays a price for ignoring the hand of God. But the reality for you and me today is we look back over the events in life. We look at the way things have happened. You're here this afternoon. You might say, well, I'm here. You know, it's just, just, you know, just happened to be here. You know, I just happened to live in wherever it is, close enough to escape. Just happened to be invited by so-and-so. Just happened to be. It just happened. It just happened. It's just one of those things. And, you know, we're here and, and the coffee's okay and you know, I enjoy the biscuits and the people are okay to chat to. You know, that, that's just, I'm just here. Or we say, actually, as I look back and I see the events that have brought me to this point in time, I realize, remarkably, it is God who has brought me to this point. You might have been a Christian for many, many years, and you might be able to say, even now I can say, it is God who has brought me to this point. You might not be a believer. You might be just looking and thinking about this whole Christian faith thing. 
One of the things that the Bible encourages us to see is that the God that we worship is not a kind of hands-off God who's wondering what's going on in this crazy world that is seemingly out of control. He is a God of intervention. He is a God who is dealing in the situations in life and he is placing us in the situations in life that place us right here at this moment in time before his word that makes us responsible for what we do with it. It's what God does. That's what we see here. But there are two different perspectives, aren't they? One says I'm striking a deal. One sees God's hand. But who is it that sees God's hand? And what actually happens? Because what actually happens is remarkable. Melchizedek, verse 18, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. (laughs) You know when you get just a little kind of, I just throw it in there. Sometimes you get it in a story or in a film. Particularly, you pick it up in a a well-written novel. And there's just a little comment, just a little uh, insert of an incident or a a conversation, which at that point in time becomes, well, it's just a, a byproduct. But later on, it becomes absolutely a key event. King Salem brings out bread and wine. What is bread and wine? Well, later on in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that bread and wine is the king's fair. The king's fair. When David sends, uh, sorry, when uh, Jesse sends David to Saul, he packs up bread and wine fit for a king. Here's the king bringing out a kingly banquet for Abraham. He's recognizing, but now, you know, Tuesday, we're going to we're going to meet and we're going to eat bread and wine, kingly banquet. <laughs> and remarkably, Jesus says, that banquet is not a byproduct to me. Isn't that amazing? The kingly banquet becomes no less than me. But here's a little hint, isn't it? Just a little throw in there, this kingly banquet. Melchizedek turns up and he blesses Abraham, but Abraham responds Abraham responds in a a humble way, in a subservient way. All of the actions that we see going on here are, are very interesting. We see somebody who stands in front of Abraham who conveys a blessing upon him. You get the story, you get the picture, don't you? You know, the, 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 the aged sort of granddad and the little child comes up to him and, and he, he puts his hand on the little one's head and he blesses him. That's what happens in, 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 in family relationships. He's, he's able to convey that patriarchal blessing as, as, the, as the older man in the family. But this man, as the priest, stands above Abraham and blesses him on behalf of God. Not blessing him on behalf of our family. I'm blessing you on behalf of God. I am acting in a capacity that sits between God and you, Abraham. Now that, if we've been following the story, is amazing. (laughs) Because Abraham, according to the story, is the one who God has been speaking to. He's the one who God has promised is going to be the founder of a great nation. 
He's the one who God has promised is going to be given this land. He's the one who God has been promising right the way along. I'm going to keep my hand upon you. He's at the center and Abraham ends up subservient to this priest, Melchizedek. And we know he's subservient because the next verse tells us that he gives him a tenth of everything. He brings tribute. He brings honor to the one who has given him the blessing. He sits himself in a place which says, I acknowledge that you are there. You are in a place between me and God. And I bring you tribute and I receive your blessing. The one who God has been speaking to receives the blessing from Melchizedek. What is going on here? I love the way God in his wisdom creates little footprints through history. Little footprints that get us ready, that prepare us. And it prepares us for this reality. We all know that we need an intermediary between us and God. Every society right the way through history has known that they need an intermediary before, between them and God. Historically, the ancients have done that. That intermediary has worked in one of two ways. He's either worked as a person in terms of some sort of priestly capacity, or he's worked in terms of a dramatic act. So the ancients, um, it was not just the, the, the Hebrew faith that were sacrifices. Many ancient religions sacrificed. In fact, the Canaanites of the day of Abraham were, were big time into human sacrifice. Why? Because they understood that for, to come to terms with this great deity, this huge outside of our control deity, we need a dramatic act or a dramatic person to sit between us. I need what the Bible uses the term, I need a priest a mediator, an intermediary. That's what a priest does. Somebody who sits between. And Abraham knew that he needed a priest. He needed somebody, even though he was blessed in this remarkable relationship that God had spoken to him, he knows he needs a priest. And he acknowledges the hand of God. He acknowledges that this king of righteousness, this king of peace, is representative of precisely what I need before God and I will bring tribute to him, I will honor him, I will receive his best blessing, I will basically bow myself before him because I know that he is working for me between me and God. That's what he says in his actions. And he says completely the opposite to the king of Sodom. He says, I honor you, Melchizedek, as the one who is honoring me, as the representative of God. I honor you as the one who is sitting in between me and God. As for you, King of Sodom, I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything. I'll take the food that my men have eaten, because that's what's due to them. But I don't want anything from you, because I never, never want to give you the opportunity to say, I made Abraham rich. So you have everything back. What a difference. Abraham knew he needed a priest. You say, well, yeah, that's great, so what? (laughs) 
apart from that written into human experience, written into our very being right the way through time, is that we all know that we need that intermediary. We all need that priest. We all need somebody to represent us. And God, by his grace and by his mercy, he says, right, it's like this. I will prepare the ground for you. I'll prepare it. Back in 1983, uh, appearing on TV, appearing in uh, national newspapers, magazines, all over the place, five words. Have you heard the whisper? That's all it said. Some of you won't even have heard of this. You're too young. Back, back in 1983, it was the first most successful teaser advertising campaign. Have you heard the whisper? It went on for a month. That's all it did. Uh, and then after, I think, about two weeks, have you heard the whisper was accompanied with Cadbury? <laughs> and then after about a month, hit the street, into every um, news agent and all the rest of it, whisper chocolate bars. What was happening? They were preparing the way. Preparing the way. It took a month for us to prepare the way for the Whisper Bar. One of, reckoned to be one of the most successful advertising campaigns. A new way of doing things, the taster ad. Happens still. In fact, I've noticed it's happened in the past uh, few months. Happens with weddings. Apparently. <laughs> you get the invitation. Open it up. Ah, okay. Yeah, pastel colours. Right, okay. Oh, it's got lace on this invitation. Right, that's interesting, isn't it? Half of this congregation are going, yeah, so what? <laughs> the other half are going, yeah, I know, it's really exciting, isn't it? Because all you girls are thinking, yeah, I know, you're thinking, is it going to be pastel colours in the wedding? Is that lace going to be the lace in the dress? Oh, it's going to be amazing. And we're going, yeah, the lace ties the thing together and the colours, yeah, it's a nice colour, but, you know, you're into it. And then you get to the wedding and the bride walks down the aisle, probably preceded by the bridesmaids, and the colour of the invitation and the bit of lace becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? It becomes irrelevant because now you see the real thing. You are entering into the joy of the moment of the day. You can see it there and the preparation has been done. We know we've been invited to the wedding. We've had hints of what it might be like, but here is the real deal. What's the real deal for Melchizedek? Hebrews chapter 7 makes it clear. Hebrews chapter 7 ties it all together. It says, yes, I know. You need a priest. <laughs> but you don't need a priest like the priests that have been here for the past 1,500 years. You need a much, much better priest than the priests that served in the temples. Because subsequent to this, God kept his promise to Abraham. He did become a great nation. And his great-grandsons, the Levites, they became servers in the temple. They became the priests 
They became the ones who delivered for the people of God on behalf of God the intermediary role. They did what Melchizedek is doing here. They sat between God and the people so that you and me, if we were wearing Hebrew sandals before Jesus and you and I had no, either knew that we had sinned against God or knew that it's possible that we might have sinned against God, we would have gone to the temple, we would have brought our sacrifice and the priest would have sat between us and God and on behalf of us, they received the sacrifice, they, can, they commit the sacrifice and then they act as the one who brings blessing on us and forgiveness to us. That's what the priest does. Every year, the priest did exactly the same as a one-off event uh, where one lamb was sacrificed and one released, one goes free, one is killed, blood is shed so that all of us can be forgiven. That's what the priests do. We've always needed that. But just in case our Hebrew sandals get a bit too big for their boots, let's not think that those priests are everything. Because Melchizedek tells us you need a better priest. It works like this. Think about the logic, Hebrews 7 says. Think about this. Melchizedek acts in a priestly capacity. Abraham is subject to that priestly capacity. He gives himself to that. He allows himself to be the receiver of blessing from that priestly capacity. Right the way down the line, his children, in effect, become the priests. The logic goes like this. If his children become the priests, then they become subject to Melchizedek as well effectively. They are subservient to this better priesthood. So why are they subject to this better priesthood? What does this point to as a better priesthood? Two things. Two things. Other things, but at least two things. Firstly, this priesthood is better because it is a timeless priesthood. You know, we said right at the very beginning, Melchizedek just kind of drops in there, doesn't he? He is a remarkable character. If we take the time to read Genesis, we understand this. Everybody who is significant in terms of their their holiness or their their role or their, their, their key role in the story of God, in the, in the story of Genesis. Every single one of them where we see, for example, Seth, where we see Enoch, where we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, every one of them has something. They have a heritage. They have a family line that is recorded in the book of Genesis. We read about the family of Abraham. We read about the family of Seth. We read about the family of of Noah. They're all holy men and they have a, a lineage. And yet here's a holy man who doesn't have a lineage. He just drops in there. 
And yet we know he's holy because he's, he's priest for the God Most High, El Elyon, the God Most High, the God of creation. And yet he hasn't got a heritage. That's the kind of priest that we need. Not one who is constrained by birth, but a, a priest who drops in with a timeless heritage. That's what Melchizedek looks like. Somebody who just drops in with no heritage, yet he is supremely holy. What about this? What about the next priest might look like this? He might have a heritage which says that he is born to Mary. He might have a heritage which says that his father is Joseph, part of the family tree of David, but it also says this, he is born of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have the kind of heritage that a normal person has. What about when a priest turns up like that? Melchizedek looks a little bit like that because he doesn't have a heritage, but Jesus looks a lot like that because he really doesn't have a heritage. The other thing that Hebrews says about Melchizedek is, likewise, every other individual in this book, every other holy man, we find out about him, we find out his history, we find out who he was born to, and we find out about his death. That's what all the holy men in Genesis, that's what happens with them. What about Melchizedek? He just disappears. It's like he doesn't die. It's like he doesn't die because it's not recorded. What about when a priest turns up who really doesn't die? Well, he does. But he becomes a priest forever because he lives again. That's Jesus. That's, that's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. That's what it says in Psalms, the only other reference, of the order of Melchizedek. He looks a bit like Melchizedek, but it's a bit like the lace on the invitation. Or it's a bit like the, have you heard the whisper on the newspaper? It's just a hint Melchizedek turns up. He hasn't got a heritage. Melchizedek just disappears. It doesn't look like he dies. But Jesus turns up, and we know how he came to this world. He came born of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. That's the claim that the Bible makes. And then we read that he is a priest forever because he doesn't die and stay in the grave. He rises and he lives to continuously be our priest. Why? Because it's absolutely true, Abraham. We do need an intermediary. We do need, every one of us needs an intermediary. But you know what? We cannot live with an intermediary who's going to die on us. An intermediary who dies is no good. You know, don't go to any priest. Don't come to me and think that I can be of any good. I'm no good in that way. I can point to a good priest. I can't act as a priest. I can't stand between you and God. 
but I know a man who can. Jesus. Why? Because he's the priest that still lives. He's the priest that still lives. He's also the priest that says to his disciples, right, remember me with a royal feast. It's bread and wine. Just like Melchizedek. I am a royal priest. I can bring you a bounteous royal fare. We can celebrate together, but the celebration reminds us that the kind of priest that we need is not just somebody who sits between us and God. We also need a priest with a dramatic action, a dramatic event. How about a sacrifice? How about a sacrifice of himself? You see, Melchizedek has a key role. It's almost as though, it's almost as though we're walking along through this history and we see this footprint. It's got Melchizedek written in it. It doesn't look much back there, but I tell you what, right the way through, right the way through the history for those 15, 1800 years, all the way through, people will have been speculating. What is that Melchizedek all about? All of the rabbis will have had ideas what Melchizedek is all about, precisely because he is so ethereal. Why did God do that? Because he wants to put a little kind of enticing little footprint in the life of Abraham so that we're ready for something. We're ready for a priest because you know and I know that I need somebody to represent me before God. I need that. I I can't just walk into Buckingham Palace and stand in front of the Queen and demand that she hears me. I can't do that. You know, I, I could stand outside Buckingham Palace until I'm glued to the spot and they wouldn't let me in, no matter how much I asked. I need somebody to represent me, to say, right, I welcome you in. Please come in. Please uh, come into, now come into this, this inner room. And then the room gets closer and suddenly you're there in front of the queen because I have had a representative that has stood between the queen and me. And you know what? The queen is just another ordinary woman, full of failings. I, I, would, feel, I would feel kind of small in front of the queen. Uh, just because of her status, wouldn't you? I'd probably be a bit lost for words and trying to, trying to put on my best accent, which isn't very good. Uh, all of that kind of thing. I'd try to do my best in front of the queen, but you know what? That is nothing. That is just trying to do the right thing. I wouldn't actually feel wholly unworthy before the queen, but I would before God. I would feel stinkingly unworthy before God. Hasn't it been amazing to see some of the Paralympics over this past week? People who, their their abilities, their commitment, their dedication seems even to surpass those who went before. I would feel a sense of unworthiness in the presence of some of those people just because of their sheer dedication and commitment. But I wouldn't feel dirty and sinful 
in front of them, but I would in front of God. Because the glory of His beauty and His righteousness would shine on me in such a way that in figurative terms, all of the horrid reality of me would shine out if I came into the presence of God. In fact, it would be like a, it would be a, like a match approaching the sun. I would, be, I would disappear in an instant in the face of that glory. Now, what about if I have a priest who stands in front of me and does two things? He shields me from the unapproachable glory of God so that I can come into the presence of God safely. So he does that for me. And then he clothes me in his righteousness so that God can look at me. Now that is some priest. We cannot come into the presence of God without a priest. But only one will do. Because every other priest has died. Apart from one who is of the order of Melchizedek who lives forever. Isn't it amazing (laughs) the footprints that God places in the history of this world? This was being talked about before Jesus arrived. People were speculating about Melchizedek even then. It was a known story then and yet we see it now. We see the reality. So I would encourage you If we know we need a priest, a representative, a mediator, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, our great high priest. 